So here we are. I can finally stop dancing around this topic. I, I know it hasn't actually been this long, but I feel like I've been dancing around the, you know, the changeling Bashir. Uh, change a sheer buck but changeling thing i don't know for several episodes now spoilers 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 <clears throat> this episode was directed by gabriella Beaumont, which i only bring up because i have no idea how to pronounce her name but more to the point she's actually a really good director and has mostly been a tng director in fact she does quite a few good things over on tng that i've pointed out over the years this is her only ds9 directing and she'll do one other episode over in voyager and that's it you can kind of see some of her style, but only a little bit. For the most part, this is kind of a character piece, although she does a good job of that. She pulls a lot of really great character moments into this episode. If anything, it feels like a build-up to a war with the Dominion, which is funny. <laughs> Originally, this episode, this two-parter, I should say, was going to be about Eddington and how he was going to escape from the Federation penal colony. And the intention was to portray the Federation as the bad guys. And as I think I made clear in the last episode, that would not be hard to do. It's interesting that they decided to torpedo that idea. I'm not really 100% sure why. The stated reason is they felt that the audience didn't care about Eddington. I could insert a joke about lack of recurring characters and blah, blah, blah. But honestly, I don't know if I believe that. I don't know. What do you guys think? Would you have been into that? I'm not saying this isn't... This isn't an excellent two-parter. I'm just saying that uh, I would have liked to see that. Anyways, <clears throat> so I actually didn't mention this last episode because I hate putting down the spoiler thing whenever I have to, but Alexander Siddig was actually informed last episode that he was playing a changeling because there was a scene between Bashir O'Brien and Eddington, and that scene was cut, but they did actually sit and film it, and so the director pulled him aside and was like, hey, you're a changeling, and what? And that's when he was informed. So And you can kind of tell. His portrayal is subtly different. I'd like to say that I saw it originally, but I didn't. I didn't pick up on it. He isn't being tr portrayed in the usual Star Trek fashion when someone has been replaced by our duplicate or mind-controlled or alien-infested or whatever. He's just being... Well, basically, imagine if you summarized Bashir as a character. That's how he portrays him. That makes sense, because they have intel reports and, and brain scans and otherwise in order to, to do this. This is, this is never confirmed to my knowledge, but I've always theorized this is why they keep prisoners in the Dominion, so they can replace them. That's why they have Martok, that's why they have Bashir, right? Now, that's theory, but it would make sense to me. But the point is, you're only ever going to get the surface level for some of those things. You're not going to be able to get the nuances of how, well, let's be honest, complex and in-depth people really are. But there's a few moments where Bashir says a few things that are actually out of character for Bashir in this episode. The first is he uh, insists that the mission to the Gamma Quadrant must not go, which is a very not-Bashir thing to say in a very not-Bashir way. And the final thing he says is when Dax quietly says, Worf, he says very coldly, as a Klingon warrior. Yeah, he'll, he'll, he'll understand the, the choice of this. Neither of those actions are Bashir actions. They're not necessarily out of character, but they are not things he would do. You know what I mean? Anywho, <clears throat> I'm sorry, since, I just, since I'm starting off talking about the Bashir thing, I have to point out two other things. First of all, one of the other things Siddig does is he's almost always just kind of pleased with himself when he's playing the changeling. You notice that? 
Like, and I know that's strange, but basically he acts a little bit more like season one Bashir when he's playing the Changeling. Just a little cocky and a little pleased with himself. And there's usually just a small little smile on his face, you know, like, I just thought I'd get you some sandwiches. Is there anything else you need? You know, it's, it's just just a little bit there. Even the way he interacts with Garrick in a private environment where it's just him and Garrick, he's still portraying that particular brand of Bashir. It's interesting. The other thing about Bashir I want to mention is that when they show the real one, he's coming out of solitary, who? And then Bashir comes in and it's just, that caught me. Like when I first saw this, I was just like, oh, because that's, it's a great moment. We've already established what the changelings are, narratively speaking, and what they can do. And, well, anybody who's paying attention can tell the type of uniform he's wearing, which was a deliberate visual choice to showcase how long it's been, like five or six episodes at this point. I forget the exact number. So, yeah. We look at that and it's like, oh, it's a great visual moment to help indicate, you know, the, the stakes and the significance of the situation. Unfortunately, Bashir doesn't actually have a lot else going on in this episode, so let's move on. This is what I like to call continuity of the episode. I know I poke fun at DS9 because, well, to be completely honest, because I disagree with some of their choices sometimes. I'm allowed to be critical of something I love. <laughs> Last I checked, that's still a thing I can do. And that being said, this episode has... Martok, Bashir, Tane, Zial, Dukat, and it even mentions First Contact, the film. I, I think I actually missed a few things there, but you can kind of tell how it's pulling together a lot of different points of Star Trek into a singular two-parter. It's good stuff. <clears throat> next, next thing I want to comment. Odo makes this comment, oh, romances for solids. Why? Don't tell me procreation is the only reason you think romance should exist, Odo. No, he's just doing his own blatant lying. And Kira is, of course, the one to encourage him, as she would, because she is his friend. And she can see through his bullcrap, so she can kind of understand that he actually wants to have some kind of romance in his life. Just a nice little touch there. And that, of course, immediately segues into Zial and Garak. Now, <laughs> this has never been outright stated, but they've actually changed the actress who played Zial several times. Three times, I think, total. And one of the biggest reasons I've always theorized why that is is because they wanted to have the Zial garak romance angle. And the original actress who played Zial was a little too young for that. So they fixed that, <laughs> basically, to put it as simply as possible. There's also, if I'm being honest, there's also some facts that they couldn't get the same actress. Uh, I think it was the second time, so they replaced her. And then they wanted to age her, so that's the third time. Or, excuse me, the second time, the second time for the third Zial. But anyways... Point being, I do like how there's... Well, let me put it to you this way. Uh, there's a brief scene with Garrick and Bashir. Don't have much to add to that. And then Dax... <laughs> Dax has an interesting scene with Worf. It's reasonably well acted. There's some good chemistry there. I don't buy the romance. I'm, I know I hate to keep pointing that, but I don't buy any romantic connection between two and the two. It feels like two old war buddies who are saying goodbye. You know what I mean? I know that sounds like a weird way to play that, but that sounds feels like how the scene... If the two didn't kiss, I would buy that angle completely. And, of course, she's taking the operas to give him incentive to get back home and blah, blah, blah. And, of course, he didn't want to cause a fuss and blah, blah, blah. All of that. All of that's good stuff. Excuse me. But I bring that up because immediately after that is a scene between Garrick and Zial, who have a lot better chemistry, in my opinion than Dax and Worf, at least in this one scene. And if I'm being honest, I think a lot of that is on Gabriella 
Beaumont, who, as I've said before, and over in the TNG stuff, is really great at pulling out performances out of actors. So I think that's at least on her strength. But what I love most is Garrick obviously does have some kind of feelings for her. We don't know how much, and he's not the kind of person to be open and honest about it. But when he says, I am an exile, and I am someone who will never get to go home, but when I'm with you, it doesn't seem so bad, is probably the most romantic thing I've heard him say ever. Like, that is a legitimately awesome way to express the idea that you enjoy someone's company. Really. That's a very Garak way and a very uh, Cardassian way. Actually, I take that back. It's not a very Garak way, because I think it's just the total truth. And, of course, she obviously does have feelings for him in a more romantic sense, but he, of course, is trying to dissuade her. Now, I point that out because the moment Dukat gets involved, he immediately just starts being far more romantically inclined towards her just to piss Dukat off. That being said, though, one thing I have to point out is how utterly unafraid of Dukat Garak is. Total lack of fear, just... He's not even trembling the tiniest bit. And I'd like to think that that's because, at least in terms of person, not regards of political power, not regarding personal power, not regarding whether or not Dukat would actually shove him over the edge, but I think that Garak just really feels that he is in every way Dukat's superior. That he is smarter, more adept, more charismatic, you know, etc., right? And he just takes a degree of refuge in that. Even as Dukat is literally threatening to throw him over the ledge, it's just, yeah, no, I am better than you. And he just lets that shine, because he knows how much it pisses Dukat off. Now, <laughs> Dukat. In this episode, Dukat confronts Kira, and he says some lines, and I want to talk about this, because... One of the things the writers wanted was for Tukat to be the bad guy again. Now, I've actually talked about that before because this is not the first time that's come up. But unlike the previous time where they basically just abstractly wanted to make him the bad guy, here I think they approached it from a better angle. Because in these circumstances, Dukat has been alone and fighting his desperate losing war for some time. Dukat is the kind of person who is used to having resources and is not used to having to make things work. We, we've discussed this back when he and Kira were on that freighter trying to make things work, and he was just completely, how do I even deal with this? He, there's... I'm not trying to say this to sympathize with him, really. Because it's it basically... Imagine a rich person who's been rich all their life, and then all of a sudden, money's gone. And they have to cope with all of that things that you and me and other normal people have had to deal with for most of our lives, Right? It's hard to be sympathetic in that circumstance if the person's already kind of a bastard. And that's the catch. This is one of the things I like so much about Dukat. I certainly sympathize with him. I do actually sympathize with him. But it's mostly because he is a fully fleshed out character who is interesting. There's a lot of layers to him. There's a lot of presentation to him. We see in him someone who is basically brought to what is for him the low. And I, I stress that because... The lowest of the low isn't the same for every person. Not until you get to true extremes. Not until you get to basically fantastical scenarios. In real life, everyone has something that if you got rid of it, or if you tore it down, or if you exposed them to something of, of the opposite type, that is as bad as it gets, realistically speaking, for that person. And that's what Dukat's going through. He's got his one ship and his one crew and his one war that he's failing at in all accounts. And he gets back to the station to spend some time with the one and only bright spot in his life. And he finds out that she's flirting with that piece of trash. Now, 
whether Ducat is justified in his hatred of Garrick is not really a matter for that is relevant, I don't think. It is certainly that's something that could be debated. And as ever, love to hear your guys' thoughts. I should just make like a button or something. I just hold up every time I, I say, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah. I'm not going to do that. But I, I love the idea that he comes home to his one refuge, the one thing that makes his life worth continuing living, being a, worth a damn. And she's with, okay... And he goes to confront Kira. And he's like, hey, we're, we're basically her parents at this point. What, what's going on? But the problem is he approaches her like, well, like a Cardassian. Or a typical Cardassian. I should be more clear about that. And so he doesn't approach her and admit his concerns. He approaches her and demands. He says, why haven't you been dealing with this? This was our deal. This was our bargain. She should be this and she should be that. And he basically just starts barking orders. That itself, I think, is actually a little bit of an insight into what's going to happen next episode. Because you'll notice Ducat is a lot more ordery than he has been for the last several episodes. In the many episodes previous to now, he hasn't been like that. But now he is acting as if he's on top again. Now that makes sense. But I point that out because I think that's deliberate. I think that is something that, again, we can point to Beaumont and, of course, the script for saying you should be acting this way because next episode... So, Ducat is acting in this particular imperious manner, and that, of course, makes Kira bounce right off of him. She even starts off fairly polite and even nice about it. Look, I don't like Garak. I don't think they should be together, and I think their friendship is a mistake, but it's her choice to make, because that's kind of the way she thinks about these things. And then Ducat just kind of snaps, just, just a little bit. And I want you to pay attention to that moment. He accuses Kira... Of, of orchestrating this. And then he straight up accuses her of betraying him. Now she, of course, immediately throws up a spiked wall because she's not dealing with this crap, and I don't blame her. He does go off the handle here. But I point that out because I think this is the beginning. So pay attention to this moment. I would love to know what you guys think when you think it started. And you know what I'm talking about. It's, it's something that's not going to come up for like 15 more episodes or whatever, but yeah... So, <clears throat> I have to have a quick aside. Worf has a line I just I love, and I have to share it. At the first sign of, of betrayal, I will kill him. However, I'll make sure to get his body back intact. Uh, anyways, so there is a very brief scene in this episode, I, I knew this would come up, where Kira mentions, oh my god, the baby recognizes me, because she's visiting every day. Oh my god, Whoa. Holy crap, I am so sorry. Ow. <laughs> uh, I'll try to make a note to edit that out, if I can remember. Um, there's this bit where, there's a scene where Kira comes in, and she's talking with Dax about the baby, and how, oh my gosh, um, you know, he actually recognized me. Showing just the tiniest bit of continu continuity with regards to the child. That's a nice little touch, and I knew I, knew I, I was going to be wrong, that it was going to come up at some point in the future, and here we are. <laughs> it is a nice character bit. I especially like how she goes and, and O'Brien's like, how's he doing? And she says, he recognized me. And O'Brien's like, yeah? Just immediate. That's good stuff. I like it. Good character stuff in this episode all around. I love this director. I wish I could grab her and make her do stuff for me. Anyways, directing stuff. I, I, I'd love to make a list of people who are really skilled in their, in their fields and just hire all those people and just make something awesome. That's always been kind of a private dream of mine. Anyways. <clears throat> so... 
Dukat's gone over the edge. Um, Worf goes there, and they find this place, and it goes to hell. They they decide, let's go through the nebula. Now, there's a really great moment. It starts off with Garak basically bouncing off of Worf, because Worf is mostly immune to him. He gives his excuse, you know, lying must be practiced, but Worf's just like, no. Then, well, then they he decides to give up, because they're getting to Dominion territory. Whether that was the correct call or not is, of course, something that could be debated. There's actually a lot that could be said about what would have happened in Deep Space Nine and, and Star Trek's universe in general if they had not gone to that nebula. Because this is actually one of those little little ripples that's going to have big impact kind of situations. But what I, like, what I like most about the simple decision to enter Dominion territory is that Garrick convinces him in the perfect way that you would convince Worf. By saying, this is the right thing to do. And I stress the way I say that. Garrick uses the word honor. But he means... You know, morality. He means internal honor. He has specifically recognized that Worf doesn't care about the external honor, because external honor would not say this is the right thing to do, except under certain circumstances, basically if you were challenged to it, or if it's like, oh, you know, whatever. But in this case, he appeals to Worf's internal honor, his sense of decency, duty, responsibility, and doing the right thing. And thus, Worf is willing to acquiesce. At the very least, we can get closer and try, and we'll see what we get. And then they run into the Dominion fleet, which is hiding out in the nebula. Funny thing, I, I credit that plot point for making so much sense. Of course they're hiding in there. It's a perfect place to hide. It's exactly why the, the runabout wanted to go through there, right? So, I've been wondering for about two seasons, really what exactly they would do when the Dominion fleet finally starts coming. And I decided to pay careful attention to their specific response. And there's two things that they do. The first is they announce that they're screwed because the nearest reinforcements are two days away. Yes, I'm once again bringing up the fact that they don't have ships around D-Space-9. Come the hell on. At least for once, this is understandable, and I'll cover why in just a moment. The second thing... And I'll give them credit on this. They have been actively looking into methods to deal with the, the wormhole. You know, close the pipeline. That makes sense. It's a logical answer. It's a minimum, you know, loss of life, loss of manpower, loss of material situation. It's not a good thing to do, and everyone knows that, but it's better than trying to set up a wall armor, a fleet here, and trying to have a brawl for the for the station, right? Especially since more fleets can come through later. It's It's more or less a more permanent solution in its own right, right? So I'm with that. And I'm glad that they were able to figure out a way to do it without actually collapsing the wormhole in its entirely. Just the entrance. So again, logical, minimum collateral damage. Very Federation. And I like how Kira, well, Kira's obviously upset about this, and, and with good reason, but it's made very clear. And Cisco pretty much just makes the argument, listen, would you rather have the profits and the Dominion, or neither? <laughs> and she's just like, yeah, okay, you're right. Prophets forgive us. But um, <laughs> I point this out because that is basically it. That's their response to a fleet invasion. I know it's mentioned to be about 50 ships, which isn't that much, but at the same time, this is Star Trek. 50 ships is a huge fleet by Star Trek standards. In fact, it is the second largest fleet we've ever seen to date in Star Trek history in real life terms. So, yeah, no, this, this is a big deal. And, well, to be perfectly blunt, 50 ships could do a lot of damage, especially Gemadar ships. So I'm with it. 
I mentioned I'd explain why I'm willing to give them a little bit of credit on this one, and that's because of the Borg. This episode was supposed to happen basically right after First Contact. Now, there's a little bit of issues with that with regards to the real-life release issue and the start date not being quite correct, but either way, the intent writing this episode was First Contact just happened. And for those of you who don't remember, the beginning of First Contact, uh, which is both simultaneously awesome and awful, I've discussed that before, is, well, most of the Federation battle fleet like the entire Federation battle fleet, all focusing on damaging this cube and bringing this sucker down, including the Defiant, I feel like pointing out. So it makes a degree of sense if you look at it from that perspective and think, okay, yeah. <laughs> the Federation is, the Starfleet in particular, is a little stretched thin right now because that just happened. Now, the actual timeline doesn't line up that neatly, and in fact, I'm actually going to bring up the first contact thing again, in several episodes, but anyways. So, Bashir, oh my god! Dukat's like, we gotta get out of here. Why did Dukat leave? I bring this up here, because because Dukat is the most debated character in all of Deep Space Nine. Ever, ever since the 90s, ever since the convention scene, the mailboard scene, people have debated Dukat. I actually fully expect people to debate con Dukat in my own comments section and on my Discord. We have a Star Trek channel just for talking about this stuff. So, by all means, continue to debate him, because he's a very dynamic, fleshed-out, fully three-dimensional character, and that means you can't really place a single label on him, which is why people debate him. But why did he leave her? Why was he willing to leave her? This will come up in the next episode, and it'll come up about 15 episodes from now. Why? Honest question. I'm going to give my thoughts on that next episode, but I would love to hear your thoughts on it. Or you could save it till next week if you'd prefer. It's up to you guys, because two-parter. So, um, there's a really quiet, awesome scene, actually where we get a lot of information in a very short period of time. Garak goes to Tane. Yes, we're alone. Notice that's one of the first things he says. And he makes a point of showing, just in the off chance that the audience didn't notice, that, yeah, he's not alone. But he says that because that's Cardassian. More to the point, Tane is someone who has been the leader of, of the Obsidian Order for most of his life and has had an entire lifetime of service to the state and service to his station. He's the kind of person who basically cannot lower that defense field unless he is actually alone. So, am I alone? Yes, so I can finally speak honestly with you. And Garrick basically pleads with him more than once. Please, let me be your son just this one time. And we get a lot of implication of the man who basically destroyed his life to be to live up to the ideal of his father and ironically the man whose life was destroyed by his job tain has always been the head of the obsidian order first and everything else second and we we've seen this before and this definitely comes in in this way because even in the end he can't actually bring himself to say this now it's worth noting that the original script did actually have him saying i love you son that was then changed by, I think, Iris Stephen Bear. I like, for, for one of the rare instances, I'm with Iris Stephen Bear on this one. I think the new version works way better. Because it's all about even... Tane could never allow himself the weakness of a son that he loves. Because that is a vulnerability point. And when you are at that level 
of governmental or polit pol political or economic or intelligence agency, when you are at that severe of a level, where you really do have to be that paranoid and that afraid, you can't afford weaknesses, any weaknesses. But we get the implication in that final, con that, that final confrontation that he wanted that weakness, that he wanted to just have his son that he loved. I think he did love him. Really, I do. And I think that in those final moments, it was as close as he ever got to allowing himself to express that externally. I was very proud of you that day. And then he dies. And then Garrick gets up and in his wonderfully Garrick sort of way says, Well, my business is done. Let's get the hell out of here. And then the episode concludes with the Bashirling, or the Changeshir, which one do you prefer? Um, you know, having sabotaged the Graviton Array, making it so the wormhole opens nice and wide, larger, actually, than usual, and a Dominion fleet comes through. That should be fun. We'll see how that one turns out next time. <laughs>